0: This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and non-fiction, graphic novels and more, we are here to help you find something great to read.
1: Hello, and welcome to Books and Nachos, Venganza Media's podcast about everything in print. I'm Arnie, your sometimes host of Books and Nachos, and for a long time, we have been put in the opening credits that we discuss fiction, nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. Well, we've done fiction, we've done nonfiction, but the podcast has been around a couple years. We never got to a graphic novel until now. If you go over to nowplayingpodcast.com, the movie review podcast, Hosted by me, Stuart, and Jacob, we are currently in the midst of a Batman retrospective series looking back at all of the Batman theatrical releases from 1966 through the upcoming The Dark Knight Rises, and I'd never really read a Batman comic, so I decided to jump in, as I talked about in our Tim Burton Batman review, and read The Dark Knight Returns, the Frank Miller classic. But since I haven't read a Batman comic, I don't feel that my opinion alone would be enough on this. So joining me from now playing is Jacob.
0: Yes, this is Jacob. longtime listener, first time podcaster for this show, at least. And like I said, when we were doing that giant Marvel retrospective building up to the Avengers, I'm the comic book guy. This is what I really love. The movies are fun. I like watching them. But this, the the graphic novels, the comic books, the art and the words put together, this is what really excites me. And if you listen to our Batman eighty nine show, I said that's where it all started for me with the comic books. And and it all started with Batman. So it's I'm really looking forward to revisiting a lot of these classics and getting a newcomer's perspective,
1: Arnie. Now, I've never really read any Batman comics. I'd read for our now playing Aliens versus Predator podcast, some Batman vs. Predator, and Batman versus Superman vs. Aliens versus Predator. And way back, if you listen to our Batman Returns podcast, which will be coming up, I did read a few Robin comics, but I never got into Batman. Now, the reason I picked the, this comic and what we're doing next week, The Killing Joke, is because I've understood those are what really inspired Tim Burton's vision for his 1989 film. And Jacob, since you... Got into Batman through that 1989 film. Were these some of your first go tos? The killing joke was that that was one of the early
0: Batman comics that I bought off someone at school because it had been, it was like the third or fourth printing. Dark Knight Returns. I came too much later. The comic book market's really different today. Everything gets collected and put into a graphic novel trade paperback form. But back then in, you know, the early nineties, it had to be a very special story to be collected. And they were a little bit more expensive. Again, I was in junior high. I didn't have a whole lot of money to pick up graphic novels. It was tough enough scrounging up, you know, 75 cents to buy a comic book. So I had been collecting and reading comics for maybe three or four years before I finally picked up the Dark Knight Returns.
1: But now by this point, you have read so many comics that I'm gonna lean on you as we go through these graphic novels on a little bit of comic history because I'm a long time Marvel comic reader, but mostly I read the mainstream stuff. It isn't until the past decade that, and really thanks to movie tie-ins that I went back and started reading such seminal classics as Watchmen and V for Vendetta and Dark Knight Returns and Mouse and many of these others. And I really think of when with my mostly uninformed opinion, when I think of the turning point for comic books away from Kitty Fair and into this more all ages type of thing, I do think of the early to mid 80s and Alan Moore and Frank Miller are two of the names that I hear a lot, but I don't know a lot about.
0: Yeah, you know, you talk about these different ages of comic books, the golden age, the silver age. The silver age has a very specific date. There's one issue that pretty much defines the Silver Age. Showcase number four, October 1956, when the Flash was reinvented into how he's known today. For the Dark Age or the Bronze Age, whatever you want to call it in the 80s, 1986 was that year. Dark Knight Returns begins during the first half of 1986. Watchmen comes along during the second half of 1986. Two big game changers for the comic industry, taking it into a much more mature market. It had been slowly evolving that way, but I, I these are two
1: groundbreaking series that really said, hey, we're going to do comic books a little bit different now. So you're telling me that this came out before Watchmen, which is shocking to me because when reading this, I really got a Watchmen vibe off of it. And they were both DC comics.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of similarities. I really picked that up this time reading through it, having read Watchmen more recently because of the movie that came out a couple years ago. Yeah, I I was, you know, with comic books and with artists, they start so far ahead, and there's always talking about, hey, this is the kind of story I want to do, talking with the editors, both in DC, who knows? It might have just been the spirit of the times. It was the Cold War, Reagan, we thought we're going to blow up
1: the world, and you see that kind of paranoia in both of these stories. And looking at this story, as I understand it, it is out of continuity, right? It's its own, like, parallel pocket universe, where Batman is an old man, he's 55, and he's been retired for a long time, Commissioner Gordon is 70, and being forced into retirement, and all the superheroes have pretty much vanished, except for Superman, who's now an agent of the government.
0: Yeah, superheroes kind of forced out of the public eye, Something similar to Watchmen, too. But yeah, there there's this, I guess, this Frank Miller Batman universe. I think it's called like Earth 31. Uh, it, you know, with these comic book universes, they have multiverses where they try to explain every different variation, every different what-if story. Frank Miller has built this Batman universe where you have year one, you have Dark Knight Returns, you have his all-star Batman and Robin the Boy Wonder, and they all kind of build into this own little version of his universe, his Batman universe
1: for him. And I think the other thing I did not realize until picking up the graphic novel to read for this is that The Dark Knight Returns was actually a series of comics. I thought, like you said, graphic novels were different than trade paperbacks. I thought this was just a single graphic novel. I didn't realize it was a series of issues that came out over a period of time.
0: Yeah, it was just four issues. They were extra length. I think they were called premiere issues back then. They were square bound. And this wasn't even called The Dark Knight Returns. It was just called Batman The Dark Knight. The first issue, they all had their own separate titles for each issue. The first issue was Batman The Dark Knight Returns. And so when they collected this together, that's how it gets referred to now.
1: Now, when we were talking about Batman 1966 at Now Playing, we both agreed that that kind of cast a really long shadow over Batman. So, is that what the Batman comics were until Frank Miller started this Dark Knight? Had he even been called the Dark Knight before this? Oh,
0: yeah. I mean, Batman, when he first started in the 40s, it was very pulp. It was inspired by comics like The Spider or The Shadow. I mean, the original design that Bob Kane came up with for Batman was just a dude in a suit with like a, a cape with some jagged edges, so it kind of looked like wings. It wasn't until these Ghost Riders came along and slowly redesigned the characters where we get this Batman that we're now familiar with in this costume. I mean, they, of course, they're trying to tap into the popularity of Superman at the time, too. So it was these two different genres, the pulp and the superhero. And it was, you know, Batman fighting gangsters, but as time went along, the comics code really pushed out a lot of those more gritty crime elements in comics. You couldn't do that. So Batman, it's a weird character. You think of Superman, he could fly in space. All these characters, they could fly around. They could have these fantastical voyages fighting Martians and whatnot. But for Batman, it was really weird. He had to be pushed into that universe. And and so in the 50s, you get him fighting sea monsters and going to different planets. And then Batman 66 comes along, where it was this real camp, lighthearted version, which The comics were moving in that direction. But by the 70s, Batman had started turning darker and grittier again. Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill, two big names in comics. They had done some Batman issues. It started moving to this darker version. But what Frank Miller said was Batman sales were on the decline for the comics, but when they would do polls with, uh, you know, just general audiences, just the general population, Batman was always the most popular character, and he didn't understand why are these sales going down. It was because that long shadow cast by this campy 60s Batman, and he really wanted to take that character and and try to bring it back more to those pulp roots to this darker version of him, the Dark Knight, and I, I think without that history, this story doesn't really have the impact that it it does because of that crazy history with Batman.
1: I think I'd agree. I think that somebody reading this back in 86 probably was in for a lot more of a jolt than I was because when reading this, I can't help but think of the things that came after that I've already read that this reminds me of. I mean, you've got Batman as an old man. Well, I've read the Marvel comic Old Man Logan, which I think is very derivative of this now that I've read this. And Watchmen, I thought this was ripping off Watchmen, and now I just see that it was the times that this kind of media satire that permeates the Dark Knight Returns, something I really didn't expect out of either Dark Knight or Watchmen when I first picked it up. I did read that before the movie. The media satire, the commentary on the social states, all of this type of thing probably was really... Whiplash-inducing to people who were used to, holy, rusted metal, Batman. <laughs> you know, I remember when I first read this, how long it
0: took me to get through it. Today, one of the big fads is decompressed comics, meaning you really take your time. You know, an origin story takes six or seven or eight issues to tell. This is a compressed comic. There is so much jammed in here. I mean, you talk about Watchmen. That was famous because almost every page is a nine-panel grid. There are pages here with 16 panels on it, and and it's done regularly, all these talking heads.
1: There is a lot going on, a lot compressed into this series. I agree completely. It took me quite a while to read this, and it's very long. I mean, it's the graphic novel I have is well over 200 pages, so when I say it's four issues, yeah, these were four giant-sized issues. The other thing that surprised me is just going into this first one, I really didn't know what to expect. And that they aged Bruce Wayne and made him older, I really went with, I was a big fan of the Batman Beyond TV series, so I'm kind of used to seeing an old Bruce Wayne. To have him retired like this, I didn't know who the enemy was, but I kind of went with Joker. It's the go-to, and especially since I knew this was some of the inspiration for the Burton film, And so when it starts and they're talking about Two-Face is going to be the villain, that also, I had no clue where this was going to take me. I just was really surprised that it was actually going to be a string of villains. It basically is very episodic in that every issue, while it has continuing themes, every issue has its own fight. Batman has his own villain in each one to overcome.
0: Yeah, I noticed that, too. Like, there's so much going on in this series. Again, so compressed. This first issue, Two-Face. Then we get this mutant gang leader. Then we get the Joker. The Joker's not the final bad guy. Then we get, like, nuclear holocaust and this battle against Superman. Like, this will not happen in comics today. You do not see this kind of compressed storytelling where we're going to throw everything in there in the kitchen sink. And in a way, I like that. I want to get my the bang for my buck. But it's, it's a risky move. It could come off very cluttered, very claustrophobic. You gotta know what you're doing with this kind of storytelling.
1: And there is so many main characters and so many point of view characters because you've got Batman coming back from retirement and basically he just missed crime fighting. I can't remember. Did they say why he retired?
0: It's because they were all pushed into retirement. Ah. Which you don't find out until, like, the third or fourth issue. It, it's a kind of a mystery going on the whole time.
1: Okay, yeah. There, and there are several of those that just persist throughout the entire thing. I kind of liked in the first issue, the villain is Two-Face, but you're left wondering if it's really Two-Face or if it's an imitator, because they show Two-Face and he's been cured. Plastic surgery had gotten to the point where they could fix that purple side of his face and make him normal again, and... You've got doctors on TV claiming he's perfectly cured and should be sent out into society. This is where Miller's social commentary started, and I liked it at first, but I've got to say as the four issues went on, I got a little tired of the repetitive nature of how these TV psychologists just kept being apologetic towards the criminals and saying they need their chance to be back in society, and yet... Calling Batman insane and a criminal who must be stopped and all of that—it's unsubtle to me in the 21st century.
0: Yeah, and I think it's really maybe kind of a little bit ahead of its time. I mean, I remember in the 90s when you started getting like the Menendez brothers and oh, I was beat as a kid, so it's all right that I killed my parents. And you started getting all the political correctness. I mean, I'm sure that was has its roots and it was going on in the 80s. I just wasn't aware enough uh, to to realize it going on, but. That's what sticks out is that he really caught on to that. It, it does go a bit too far. He, he keeps pounding it. And I don't feel like there's this thread. Is Batman a fascist? Are his methods, are they the right thing? And I like that there's this dialogue going back and forth. But I don't feel that Miller ever provides a satisfactory, I don't know. I want to say an answer. I like a little bit of ambiguity. But I would like for him to have some kind of a viewpoint on it. And I, I feel like... There's a lot of questions raised here over and over, sometimes the same question over and over, and there's not a satisfactory resolution to those.
1: And I agree completely. I think that if I read this one issue a month over four months, it might not feel as repetitive. It felt to me like throughout this entire graphic novel, Miller hit a lot of the same points again and again. I was really drawn in by the Batman story of each issue, every one of them. Really got me. But the pages in between, those 16 panel pages you're talking about, where they cut to the newscasters commenting on what happened. At first, I really liked them because it's something I could very much relate to. If anything, the real world has gotten worse than Frank Miller depicted in this <laughs> graphic novel. But yeah, by issue three or four, I found myself kind of taking a deep breath and all right. Let's see the stupid psychologist again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll give this to Miller. He's, he's really grown to have a cinematic eye with his comics. Uh, if you've seen 300, I mean, that's pretty much they just filmed the pages. I mean, he drew that to be cinematic. And I really see those roots with the Dark Knight returns. You know, I've read his Daredevil stuff, uh, his Wolverine miniseries that he drew. And he, I didn't really feel he had the defined style that he does today. And I think with the Dark Knight Returns, you really see that style developing and his pacing, you know, it it does get cumbersome with all these TV talking heads going on. But I like, he's kind of bringing that cinematic eye to it. There's some, some of my favorite comic panels ever are in this series. You know, we get Superman and he's talking to the president. We don't know who's talking. All we see is this American flag, and it's just drawn to be waving and waving, and it slowly forms into the Superman S. I love that little sequence there. And then when Superman finally appears, you never really see him. You see the aftermath. You see a crushed subway. You see uh, you know, this newsstand with the magazines blown all over. I, I feel that Miller really has a great eye in this series. He overuses it at times, like with the talking heads, but even reading this today, this is still, like, groundbreaking stuff. Like, if I was reading a modern comic that had this kind of storytelling in it, this kind of pacing, I I would be happy with it. I, I don't think people would be complaining about the whole decompressed era where I got to buy 12 issues to get just an origin
1: story. Did Miller do the art of this? I guess I didn't realize that.
0: Yeah, Miller did the pencils. Klaus Johnson, who did a lot of the art when Miller was writing Daredevil. Miller, he started writing it, and then he'd write and draw. Klaus Johnson was a collaborator of his. I believe Klaus Johnson did the inking. And then Lynn Varney, who Miller, again, has worked with a lot, will we'll see that coloring done in Dark Knight Strikes Again and 300. Lynn Varney does the coloring here. So he did all the penciling, and then we had an inker and a colorist come in. But,
1: yeah, this is, this is his art. And I have to say, since we're talking about the art, I'm torn because it does have some great panels. I really did like the Superman because I wasn't expecting Superman to be in this. It's the Dark Knight Return, so I didn't realize Superman would be part of it. Some of his splash pages are absolutely gorgeous. There's some great poses of Batman, and there's one page that I really remember of Batman holding a body draped in a flag. Just some really wonderful art, but by and large, this is an era of art, and especially the colors that I'm not a huge fan of. And when you get to some of the smaller panels and away from the splash pages, it's so liney and so kind of grainy. You know, it has kind of a 70s grit to it that, I don't know, I like the Silver Age comics, and I like some of the current comics that are all Photoshopped. This kind of middle era, it often... I'm not a fan of, but I have to say it's better than some of the others around the period where, like, V for Vendetta, I couldn't even tell the characters apart. But here, I never had that problem.
0: I mean, yeah, art is subjective. Everyone's going to have different tastes. I typically like clean line artists. Mike Allred, Brian Boland, who we'll talk about when we get to The Killing Joke. I really like clean lines. There are some stylistic artists, though, that really work for me. Not all of them. You take someone like Sam Keith, who uh, did the Max in the 90s, was made into an MTV animated series. His has a big fan base. His style just isn't for me. Too scratchy. Here, I like this. I'm surprised you don't like the coloring. This is all watercolor. This was all painted. I, I think this is a beautiful looking... Now, granted, I I own the Absolute Edition of this, which if if you don't know what the Absolute Edition is, they're the big archival, they're by 10s huge slip-cased hardcovers, great reproduced colors and everything. So uh, I'm not looking at this <laughs> in grainy singles form or in an older trade paperback. I, I have a very high-end edition of this, and and I think it looks beautiful. The the art...
1: And I got the $11 paperback on Amazon. (laughs) So
0: that maybe that accounts for the different... I mean, I think, again, the coloring. This is watercolor. This was a painted comic. It's beautiful to me. The art... It's Miller. I mean, you look at his art, you think you know his style, but when you compare his stuff, you compare this to The Dark Knight Strikes Again, compare it to Sin City, compare it to 300, compare it to Holy Terror, his latest graphic novel, like, it's always just changing, and there's always an evolution to it, and so this is a very, you know, he's moved away from the, what I would call the Marvel house style, and he's starting to develop his own style here, and to to me, it's exciting to see.
1: Now, in this, they retell the Batman origin, and I only know the Batman origin as it was told from the movies. Is this the... The canonical one being retold, or is Frank Miller kind of giving a rewrite to Batman's origin with the bat crashing into Wayne Manor? And
0: If you read the original, and before, right before this podcast, I pulled out my old reprints of the original Batman number 1 where they sh- finally got around to showing his origin stories. And, you know, in his original appearance in Detective Comics, he just shows up as Batman. But it, it's, it's all done like on two pages. It doesn't really go in depth. His parents die. He swears to their spirits that he'll devote his life to fighting crime. He's doing some science, lifting some barbells. Uh, he sees a bat and decides to dress as Batman. For the modern, now, again, this isn't proper DCU continuity. Now, when we talk about Batman year one, we're going to see a lot of these themes repeated and that is more in line with DC continuity. This is like the expanded version of the origin story. We had the short little clips in the original 1939 comic book, but now we're getting, you know, what happened in between the panels, why he chose, you know, get more in depth of why he chose to become a bat and the the great bat flying through the window and, And this, this weird devotion he has to his father. I mean, that, that's all Frank Miller. Frank Miller, he, he's an enigma to me. I don't know if this guy is doing satire half the time or he's really down with this pulpy, noir narration. I mean, he reads in city and I don't know if the guy's serious or not. It's just (laughs) so over the top, but everything I've read and the long discussions I've had about Miller's work
1: is he thinks this is tough. He likes this. This is, this is what a man is. With that, I guess he thinks a man uses guns. Now we talked in the Batman podcast about how it's a big thing. Batman doesn't use guns. Here, he is down with the firearms.
0: I mean, this is an older Batman and they do confront, will Batman kill? I mean, that's always been the big thing. Not, you know, he has grappling guns and that, whether or not you want to call those guns. But the big thing is he won't kill. And here, when we get to the, Third issue, where we get the Joker story, that becomes a, a, a big theme, is how many more people will I let be murdered because I let the Joker live? And he has to confront, will he finally just kill the Joker? I mean, this is an old, dirty, hairy Batman. All the idealism is gone in, in this version of Batman. This is a, a man that wants to finish what he started, and you know he's constantly having chest pains, afraid he's going to have a heart attack. So... You know, when he has that sniper rival, it's it's to shoot a grappling gun. I don't have a problem with that. There is a scene which,
1: this came out before RoboCop, didn't it? It did, and I'm really wondering about that because there's (laughs) several things that I, I, this came out about a year and a half before RoboCop. I think Frank Miller deserves more from RoboCop than just script and comic credits for part two. I think he deserves (laughs) a little bit of payola for part one here as I'm a big RoboCop fan and I'm like, That's from RoboCop, and I had to go look to see which came first, and the comic came first.
0: Yeah, I mean, all the new satire that you see in RoboCop, and Batman busting through a wall to save a hostage, which we see that in RoboCop. He breaks through the wall to save the mayor, and grabs the bad guy. Now, what I've looked at this panel over and over, and you got this mutant, he's got this big old military chain gun, Batman busts through the wall, grabs the gun, and... You're led to believe that he shot the other mutant in the head to save the baby. That's what I took it as. Yeah, and so for me, that, that's a little bit of an inconsistency. Why is he struggling if he's going to kill the Joker so much later on when he was able to take this guy out with no hesitation? I mean, that I it is a flaw to the story. It really, I, I think, causes problems with that Joker storyline later on.
1: You know, it it shows Batman firing a gun, but I, you don't see the bullets hit the guy. You see the bullets hit the wall behind him.
0: There's a splatter of blood though. Like, I, it makes me question. And you never see, you know, a few pages later, we see Batman uh, hanging a mutant upside down to find out where they got these military weapons. Different outfit though than the one that was holding the baby hostage. So it wasn't, it wasn't like he just wounded him and then, you know, draped him off this building to
1: get information. That's a different mm-hmm. mutant. These mutants, I really had a moment of questioning because we mentioned RoboCop. Some of them wear helmets. They all have these visors. And so I thought that stylistically they looked like RoboCop. When I saw the ones with the helmets, I thought that. Then I saw the ones with the visors. I started wondering if these were real mutants because they all looked like Cyclops from the X-Men.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Frank Miller has this real punk aesthetic. And this was very, I mean, growing up as a kid in the eighties, whenever you saw punks on the media, there are these very grotesque versions, stereotypical versions of them. And like, I love that. And reading comic books and you'd see the movies. Like, I, again, I believe in one of the Robo, I think RoboCop three, I know in one of the RoboCops, you get these crazy looking mutant punks in there too. I mean, to me, that always goes back to Frank Miller.
1: I kind of like that idea. What I hate is the dialect that he gives to these punks. Because he tries to create this futuristic slang, and I don't know, it just doesn't come off as anything natural. It really grates on me to hear them talking in that way. Like, I wrote down this little bit of dialogue. That Batman, he nasty. Toss spike right through the sign, Don. I figure that real cool, Rob." Figure fixin' the sign didn't billy up the price of the games and leader don't shiv on Batman. Leader say he pegged Batman. Leader say but leader chill in a cell, Don, and n- Batman he nuke half the gang radical. Hey, eyes sideways, Don, chicken leg comin' wearin' <laughs> colours.
0: You know, I noticed there's times where they speak in almost this pigeon language like that. And there's times where it's almost like it's a whole different language. I got to figure this is taken from Clockwork Orange. If you've read it or seen it, you know that these future cyberpunks have their own dialect, their own slang in the book. You don't get a glossary in Clockwork Orange. You got to figure out what they're talking about throughout the story. Take these new words and context. And I figured that was just a nod to that novel.
1: You're right. You know, now that you say that, the droogs, that makes a lot of sense. The I Future droogs. What I love about this is as it goes on, though, these mutants are just shown. And again, I think it's another target of Miller's satire in addition to the media and in addition to pop psychology. I mean, he kills Dr. Ruth in this. It doesn't yes. get more blatant or more 80s. He kills Dr. Ruth on the David Letterman show. Yes. But... He also has these teens who are these mutants, and I thought these were this hardcore gang, but later on they become like the Bat Boys. They change allegiance and become a group of gang vigilantes, which again, maybe it's, they're supposed to be badass and Batman has healed them and turned them to the good side. I took it as these teenagers will follow whoever, whatever the latest fad is. You know, if this were written today, they'd all have Justin Bieber haircuts, you know? <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, they do splitter off into different groups. The sons of Batman are one group. Later on, we see some Nazi gang members and they mentioned that they had followed the mutant leader before he was defeated by Batman. I mean, there is a splintering and the sons of Batman, these are not uh, guys. I mean, they're chopping off people's hands for shoplifting a candy bar. It's like going back to Robocop Ed 209, like this extreme justice. <laughs> And it's not till the very end, till the fourth issue, where Batman reigns him in. He's like, I'm going to train you. I'm
1: going to teach you to be the true sons of Batman. I was surprised how short the Joker's portion in all of this was and how anticlimactic it turned out to be. You know, to me, it was shocking when I first read it. The Joker, I I love his introduction.
0: He's gone in this catonic state because Batman's not around anymore. Throughout the Batman comics, there's always been this play, this dialogue. You know, the Joker needs Batman. Batman needs the Joker. They're in this eternal dance. They create each other. They give each other purpose. And you, you see that here at the beginning. You get these glimpses of the Joker throughout the first couple of issues. And he's, he's just kind of cantonic and drooling in an asylum. And then in the media, they start talking about Batman, that he's returned. And like, you see this glow in the Joker's eye and he starts coming back to life and he starts getting his strength back. And, you know, his lips become redder and fuller. <laughs> uh, and then it all culminates in, I guess it's appropriate that it's at a carnival. That seems like, you know, if the Joker's going to have a hideout, if it's it's going to be at a carnival, it, you know, they have this big fight, and and I guess to me it's about will Batman finally kill the Joker? I mean that's always a debate. You go on message boards, you know, Batman, why doesn't he just kill the Joker? He do more good than bad if he just kill the guy and stop letting him murder all these people. In this series, The Dark Knight Returns, they say he's killed maybe 600 people, and. Batman, he finally gets his chance to kill him and he breaks his neck. He snaps it, but he doesn't go all the way. He doesn't kill him. He leaves him paralyzed, which, you know, it, it's extreme, but it seems like a, a nice trade-off for Batman. <laughs> Look, I didn't kill you, but you can't move anymore. Um, and I, it always it freaked me out when I was a kid, when I first read this, that the Joker, like, twists the neck, twists the rest of his neck around and snaps it and kills himself to frame Batman. You know, reading it now, I don't know. They say they're going to charge Batman with the murder for the Joker. Uh, Batman's guts are hanging out by this point. It seems <laughs> like it's reasonable to plead self-defense here. But, you know, as a kid... I was eating this up. This was great stuff. And it's also the reason when people say, oh, they should make The Dark Knight Returns into a movie. This ain't never going to happen, people. There's no way Warner Brothers is going to put this up on the big screen for a general audience watching Batman snap Joker's neck and Joker commit suicide while Batman bleeds out of his guts. Have you seen The Dark Knight? I think they might. (laughs) This, I don't know. This is a a step more in the grotesque for me than, than as well. We'll talk about that film later
1: on this summer. But Batman gets his butt handed to him regularly. He gets disemboweled here. I mean, age is really a factor throughout this story that he's not the man he once was. And he has to fight different and fight smarter and be better than he was. You
0: know, I think this story did a lot to really define the modern Batman. You know, the modern Batman, the victories and the preparation. It, it, you could you know he's a human he is not a god he's not an alien from another planet He is not an amazon he is a really rich guy that has to be at the peak of human perfection and has to be really smart has to be able to prepare for anything and have a plan for anything and so i i, I see a lot of those roots here where it's it's not about his body he you know with the comic books, you always had Batman comics and you always had detective comics and the Batman comics were more punch him up. And detective comics were more of the detective, the, the, the smart guy, the, the crime solver using his mind. And here you, you kind of see those two come together that he knows he's old, that he can't kick as fast as the other guy. And so he's got to be a bit smarter. He's got to prepare or he's got to have a
1: huge freaking tank <laughs> for the Batmobile. <laughs> but it's an issue four that It really comes to a head The ultimate adversary he's fighting is Superman, which I know that they've had their disagreements in the past, but I never really figured the super friends in a battle to the death egged on by Ronald Reagan. You know what
0: this I grew as a kid, I grew up loving Superman because of the Christopher Reeve movie, Superman one, Superman two. It is this book that turned me against Superman. I just gotten into comics. I hadn't really been reading Superman comics, and I read this and I'm like, screw that Superman guy. He's a puppet of the government. <laughs> Batman is cool, and Superman wants to put him down. Now, there's a long history of these two teaming up. You talk about Super Friends, and you know, even earlier than that, you had World's Finest, which was a Superman-Batman team up book, and I'm sure there was times where black or red or yellow kryptonite influenced Superman to fight Batman, but It was never like this. Like, this now has become a cliche, the Superman-Batman fight. Like, I love it here. All you comic book writers could stop doing this now. Like, all (laughs) I need is this Frank Miller fight. Like, this has become a cliche, but this is really where you saw them throw down hardcore. This wasn't, you know, 50s or 60s what-if or dream stories. This is
1: the real deal here. And it happens in the wake of a nuclear holocaust. Now... This nuclear holocaust thing is something that really made me think again of Watchmen or V for Vendetta because all throughout all four issues, they're talking about how the government and Frank Miller's targets of satire are so scattered in this. Nobody escapes his ridicule, which makes it all that much less sharp in my opinion. But you've got the mayor of Gotham City, who's this complete indecisive puppet. You've got the governor of whatever state gotham city is in who's happy to defer to the indecisive mayor lest he make a decision and then you've got the president who is never named but is a former movie star rancher who looks a lot like a puppet seen in a genesis video (laughs) it's ronald reagan there is no question about it this guy looks just like ronald reagan and he's a buffoon He's talking about candy and ranching all the time that he's trying to ward off this, basically a Cuban missile crisis over the Cordo Maltese, where the Americans and the Russians are kind of fighting over missile placement in that area. And it ends with the Russians sending one nuclear missile at the U.S., I don't think it's
0: too far of a stretch with the parody here of Ronald Reagan with the candy eating. I mean, Reagan did love jelly beans. Yes. But yeah, this isn't just a a regular nuclear missile. This is like a megaton bomb that even if it doesn't hit its target, it's going to destroy the earth, reverse weather trends, send out electric magnetic pulses that will knock out the power everywhere. And you get this dialogue from Superman, you know, you don't get thought bubbles here, but you get a lot of, you know, again, I think this is when we're transitioning out of thought bubbles, and you just have captions, you have like that hard boiled noir inner thought that Frank Miller is so known for these days. But the whole time Batman talking about how there was this arms race, and Superman was supposed to be the nuclear deterrent, which again, Watchmen, Dr. Manhattan is supposed to be the nuclear deterrent, because we have a superhuman. But they, the Russians beat us to it. They won the arms race because they built this mega nuclear missile that could just
1: destroy everything. See, I didn't even, I guess, catch that it was this mega nuclear missile. I knew it was destructive, a nuclear missile usually is. When it causes the power outage, that's actually, you know, what would happen. A nuclear missile causes an EMP that would take out the power. And they even have the talking heads on the... Television, I don't know how, what they're using to record since there's no power. I, I think they were actually talking in the
0: past tense, so this was like flash forward talking about
1: what had happened. Okay, because they were saying that the with all of the U.S. defenses down, the Russians were free to just bomb us all into oblivion, but then they chose not to. But it's Superman who saves the country by diverting the missile. And then somehow decides that with that, he almost dies in the process, which was something I really liked. I thought that was a nice detail to see Superman weakened after seeing Batman weakened issue after issue after issue. Well,
0: yeah, I mean, what happens is there's this nuclear fallout. Gotham goes into total chaos revolt mode. I mean, an airplane loses power, crashes into one of their big towers. Parts fall, start setting off the cars that have all stalled. I mean, Gotham's on fire. People are rioting. And Batman comes in with the sons of Batman. He gathers them up and says, we're going to restore order. And they start rounding up people. And they say, look, you have a choice. You could be bound or you could start saving the city and receive... James Gordon, he getting people to line up and start a, a fireman line passing pails of water to put out these fires and try to unite the city. And I think that's what the threat was that people the whole time Batman was this bad guy, he'd come back into the public and they got a new commissioner that would put out a warrant for his arrest and was going to bring him down. And now the public eye's turning. Now Batman's the hero. Maybe we need these vigilantes. You know, Frank Miller's Again, interesting. He was greatly affected by 9-11. He became much more pro-government, pro-U.S. government, and we need to put our trust in the government and have them protect us from these terrorists. But before that, the government was a target of a lot of his comics. Very skeptical and, hey, maybe we need to put our faith into these supermen, these beings that, you know, they're great men in the Nechean sense they'll rise up and they'll lead us the true way. I mean, that's really the feeling I get from his pre 9-11 work. And you see it here. It's not the government that's going to save you. It's these self-made Einrind Rind men, you know, Atlas Shrugged men that are
1: going to save the country, save the world. And I do love this issue because you get Batman and the and the sons of Batman riding horses through Gotham. And it's a great great visual it's just very striking
0: yeah you get some of those great splash pages here with you know because again the emp takes out all the cars how are they going to get around well bruce wayne just happens to have a bunch of horses he's a a rich guy that's what rich people have and some great splash pages here as they ride around on their horses
1: and during this although he's preparing for his fight against superman they've had a couple talks which were great little scenes where they superman is trying to convince him you know Things were fine the way they were, just stop doing what you're doing, and Batman persists. And he knows that he's going to have this fight to the death with Superman. And so he calls him the only other hero we see. There are several others mentioned, but the only other one we see, he pulls out Green Arrow.
0: Yeah, Oliver Queen, who's now missing an arm. It makes it hard to be like an expert bow and arrow person when you only have one arm to use. But like Bruce Wayne, and I don't think, I don't I don't know, Arnie, maybe you got the sense? I don't know. I don't think they really mentioned that. Oliver Queen, he's also a really rich dude, like Bruce Wayne. But he's been hiding out in Europe or some other country and has snuck back into America to help Bruce Wayne take out Superman.
1: Everything I know about Green Arrow, I learned from Smallville. So I <laughs> So you don't know nothing? No, no. There's a new series coming out, though. I know. (laughs) And they have their final fight, and major spoiler alert, I do love how it ends, because throughout the entire four issues, Batman's been talking about having a good death. What would be a good death? Dying in a car accident, not a good death. Dying at the hands of Superman, you think he's finally getting his good death, and this whole thing has been so much about Batman dying. That it feels like the way this very much could end, being especially outside of continuity. It could end with the death of Batman.
0: They do tilt their hand, though, a little early. They they show Batman taking a pill, and he says, I have one hour. Superman better be on time, but I know he will be. He always is. I wish Frank Miller would have teased that out a little bit more, because
1: you're already suspecting something. I actually went the other way with it as a first-time reader. I thought... He was taking some nitroglycerin because he's been having chest pains throughout. I thought he had one hour because he was going to die already. And so when he seems like he could defeat Superman but then dies, it had been very much alluded to that his heart was giving out. I thought his heart had given out. I thought it ended with the death of Batman. I was as fooled as everyone else.
0: I mean, I just love this fight. Batman in a robot suit plugged into the city's power in Crime Alley where his parents died. I mean, he gets a punch in that makes Superman bleed. That that There's always a moment of pride for me when I talk with my friends that were big pro Superman people, and I was the big pro Batman person. I'm like, Batman was the only human that's made Superman bleed. And then Oliver Queen shows up to shoot a synthesized kryptonite arrow because again, Batman's really rich. And he had time and money to make synth- synthesized kryptonite to take out Superman or at least weaken him.
1: Hey, it worked much better for Batman than Richard Pryor. I'm sure we'll get there someday on Now Playing. <laughs> and it it's left at it such a cliffhanger. In the end, Superman kind of gets what he wants. Batman does go back underground, but he's not retired. He's now just starting an underground movement of the Sons of Batman to take back Gotham in a more silent manner.
0: Yeah, I mean, Bruce Wayne is totally erased from Gotham after this fight. Alfred, who I don't know, I don't think Frank Miller really likes Alfred. Alfred just seems kind of like a a nag. I mean, of course he's probably like 90 years old by this point, but he he just kind of complains and whines throughout this entire series. But Alfred, he blows up Wayne Manor, blows up the Batcave, has a stroke or something because of it and he dies has a himself. Stroke, yeah. yeah. And then yeah, Batman. I I love the moment though. Carrie, who is the new Robin in this series, well, I guess we'll have to talk about her, but she's the last person at the burial of Bruce Wayne, and Superman turns and looks at her, and Bruce Wayne's heartbeat starts up again, and he could hear that. Superman could hear that with his super hearing, and he just kind of winks at her and knows, okay, I know something's up, but I'm going to let it go. Like, okay, maybe Superman's not such the jerk that we thought he he was the entire time.
1: Yeah, I do like that it redeems Superman, which... You know, from a marketing standpoint, I feel they have to do, right? You can't take the man whose box office gold at this point. Well, I guess three had come out, but we were still not to quest for peace yet. Superman was still the number one guy in the mass media. To make him a total asshole seemed like a mistake. So at the end showing, all right, we're going to let Bruce Wayne go and just I won't say that I know he's alive. I liked that little twist at the end. Yeah,
0: you get this feeling that Batman is really now building this empire underground. Literally, they they've gone further back in the Batcave in these unexplored regions. He has the sons of Batman with him. He has his new Robin with him, and they're planning.
1: They're they're building up to something. We don't know what, but they're they're planning and they're preparing with this new Robin. I'd always heard that there had been a female Robin. Is this it? Is it only in this alternate universe that there was a female Robin? No, in regular
0: continuity, Stephanie Brown was Robin for a a very short amount of time. She started as a superhero called the spoiler and then decided that she was just going to be Robin and dressed up as Robin, but she didn't last for very long and then was killed off. So that, when you talk about mainstream continuity, that's what they're talking about is Stephanie Brown. But here, the, the Carrie here, Came before that Robin. This this is, I guess, the first female Robin, and it, it's weird. John Byrne, who it, big in the comic book world, told Frank Miller that you got to have a female Robin. You got to have a female Robin. I don't know if a lot is accomplished with the female Robin here, or just you know, I I don't know if there is maybe a sense of hey, we got to do something to to shift away from the the, the homo erotic undertones that batman has always had because he took on a young a young war now we're going to give him a young girl which
1: uh, is kind of problematic just the same (laughs) i don't know i kind of liked female robin because if there's one thing i do know about frank miller having at least seen adaptations of his work and i have read his robocop 2 depiction he's a bit of a misogynist in my opinion And that really came through here when you see Catwoman as an old overweight madam. She's, you know, Heidi Fleiss before anyone had ever heard of Heidi Fleiss. And it was refreshing to see a positive female character in a Frank Miller comic, because I had not seen that. I've not read a lot of Frank Miller, but I hadn't seen that. You're not
0: wrong, Artie. His treatment of females is problematic, to say the least. Maybe if uh, we ever do a Sin City Books and Nachos, we could really get into it because every woman is a whore in that series. I, the thing I do like about this Robin is that, you know, he Batman thinks she's a dumb kid and hey, uh, we're in this crazy helicopter. If I need your help, just say this word. She's like, well, how does that work? He's like, computers, you won't understand. And she ends up becoming like a computer expert. That's like the one thing she paid attention to, which again felt very much grasping onto the times in the 80s, you know, 84 when uh, Apple had its big Commercial that that really changed things and computers are becoming a, a, an everyday thing for a lot of people more and more in the 80s. So it made sense. You've got this kid, yeah, that yeah, they probably know more about computers than the old people do. So yeah. I did like that characterization of her that you know she's not just this spunky little kid that could flip around for some reason, but she's got some brains too.
1: The other thing I liked about it is it helped humanize Batman a little bit because he seemed so dark, so fatalistic that when I saw the early scenes of the new Robin, just trying out her scene, trying out being acrobatic and trying on an outfit and just trying to become Robin, very reminiscent of like the early scenes in kick ass or (laughs) Spider-Man, the movie. I figure when she sees Batman, Batman's going to tell her to take off the silly costume and go home. But the fact is Batman needs someone to connect to. Yeah. He didn't really connect to Alfred in this. And so he actually takes her on, and she defies his orders, and he keeps saying, if you defy my orders, you're done, you're out. But he never actually kicks her out. It shows a side of him that still needs human contact as more than just vengeance and more than just cleaning up the streets. Despite all of the sons of Batman he has, there's only one Robin who feels like his confidant and his partner. The rest are his troops.
0: Yeah, and he mentions the previous Robins. He hints at some falling out with Dick Grayson, who was the original Robin. Then he says something happened to Jason Todd. I had to look up to see when Jason Todd was murdered by the Joker. That was after this, so he never says what happens to Jason Todd. But uh, a couple of years later, the fans voted for Jason Todd to be murdered. Um, <laughs> so there, there's there there's a few little hints dropped along the way that robins have been problematic for batman and this is a theme that they've touched upon in, in other batman stories but you know one of the, you talk about humanizing this bruce wayne this batman because he is so dark and grim i mean there's the one scene where he he grabs her she's fallen from the helicopter grabs her and is just hugging her like there are some touching moments when he calls her a good soldier and he's just embracing her they, they are effective in humanizing this bruce
1: wayne so with that that wraps up our conversation of Batman The Dark Knight Returns to steal from now playing. Jacob, do you recommend it?
0: Oh, yeah. I, I think, and maybe, Artie, you you could touch on this more, but I, I think the great thing about The Dark Knight Returns is that, you know, it's Batman, he's someone in the public zeitgeist, we know Batman, we know the Joker, we know Robin. So you could come to this without needing to know a lot of the continuity, because this is almost a what-if or an else world story put in the future, you know, it works as a self-contained novel or graphic novel, if you will. And that's what I like. You don't have to have a lot of comic book history to sit down and read this. And maybe the satire dates it a little bit, but the art, the storytelling, just how different it is. I mean, even from comics today, which have been influenced by the Dark Knight Returns, this still stands out. It doesn't, Go above the superhero genre, but I think it's a great example of superhero comics. One of the best examples. Yeah, I would recommend The Dark Knight Returns.
1: I'd agree. I'd recommend it. I think reading it at this day and age, I'm somewhat jaded. It's not a new Batman for me. It is the most extreme Batman, even more than Nolan's stuff. This is a very extreme old Batman. It's stuff that has been ripped off so long that the original seems paler in retrospect. But I had a great time reading it. Some of the art didn't enthrall me as much as others. Some of the satire really got tiresome. But I don't know a lot about the Batman comic continuity. I know the movies. I know some of the TV show. I've seen a few cartoons here and there. But everything in it was familiar enough. Now, keep in mind, it was familiar enough possibly because... Two-Face has been in two Batman movies and maybe this helped with bringing Two-Face to that lore. Superman is also very famous. The only new element here to me really was the mutants and its a future society. But it's not really though cuz Reagan's president. It's an alternate society. Yeah. So, I really had a great time reading this and it left me really hanging because it ends with Batman planning and I could see that as a very nice end. It's a much better end for this character than we saw him at the beginning where he's just racing cars to try and do something exciting since he's not Batman anymore. So you could not possibly comprehend my abject disappointment when 15 years later, Frank Miller writes a sequel. I'm like, yeah, let's see what happens next. A lot of people were wondering what happened (laughs) next and were excited. What a mess The Dark Knight Strikes Again is. Now, you said Frank Miller was messed up by 9-11. This came out shortly after 9-11, but is it possible it was written before 9-11?
0: Oh, I'm guessing it was, because I know even with The Dark Knight Returns, he had fights with his editor saying, I need artistic integrity, and these issues are going to come out when they're done, and they're not going to come out according to some schedule. And he is, I mean, All-Star Batman and Robin the Boy Wonder, which I think got seven or eight issues before it finally just got canceled took like three or four years to get those seven or eight issues (laughs) and he wasn't even drawing that one he was just writing that but i'm guessing this was written before 9-11 and by the time he started doing the artwork and you know lynn varney comes back to do the coloring this was one of the early digitally colored comics, and you could kind of tell that they were really experimenting here on some of the pages. I mean, digital coloring is very common now, but this was an early example of using, you know, an artist inking something and then scanning it in and using computers to color it. So I got to figure the lead time on this was pretty long.
1: Yeah, it started in November 2001, so I feel like at least the early stuff had to be written pre-9-11, but 9-11 seems to permeate this book for me, because... It's now in an alternate future with a Max Headroom-like president. I mean, we've gone from Ronald Reagan to Lex Luthor, old and fat, has created a hologram who is the puppet president. I mean, President Luthor wasn't an original idea.
0: They had played with that in Superman. They really changed Luthor from this evil mad scientist to just like this genius businessman who... You know, it's like that Austin Powers, you, Dr. Evil in 1990 doesn't make as much sense trying to take over the world through those old 60s ways that if you want to take over the world, you become a tycoon, a business tycoon, and make your money that way.
1: But if Frank Miller's targets were scattered in the first one, in the second <laughs> one, they're positively epileptic. I mean, he's now taken it to the extreme where you've got naked news and, All of these things, and I feel like there has been a total shift, whereas before, there were some stabs at the liberal agenda by far with the news thing and the whole liberal media. Here, it feels like he is putting in bold ink on every page, the liberals are going to ruin our morals and our life. He he was always a polarizing figure, but...
0: Not so much as when the Occupy Wall Street movement came out and he pretty much said there are a bunch of dirty hippie terrorists that are ruining America. And like everyone's pretty much turned against Frank Miller at this point. Like I said, his latest work is Holy Terror, which was originally supposed to be Holy Terror Batman, where Batman goes up against Osama bin Laden and... DC was letting him do it, but he took the character so extreme. He's like, it's not really Batman anymore. And he had the grace, I guess, to just make it into an original character. But yeah, look, this is only my second time reading it. I The first time I read it, like I said, I got my absolute Dark Knight, which has both series in it. And I had never, I had read Dark Knight Returns. I had never read Dark Knight Strikes Again. And this is three issues instead of four. And I remember I, I read that first issue And I don't think Batman shows up in that first issue. I mean, we see some, like, shadowy silhouettes, but it's mostly about Robin, who is now Cat Girl, and it dresses, and not just, like, one cat. She's not just, like, a puma. She's a puma and a cheetah. She has different cat outfits and runs around on rollerblades. But the first issue kind of intrigued me. It's like, she shows up, and she's freeing Ray Palmer, who's the Adam from a Petri dish that he's been locked in, and the Flash is rescued from a giant treadmill that he's been forced to run (laughs) on to provide electricity for all of the United States for free. Like, it was kind of crazy, but for that first issue, like, it intrigued me. I'm like, okay, I'm willing to see where this goes, and
1: then it goes bad. Here's my problem, is you mentioned earlier that you don't need a lot of comic book continuity knowledge to enjoy The Dark Knight Returns. But here... All of a sudden, the very first new character they introduce is the Atom, who I've never heard of. I get him, though. I'm like, okay, he shrinks down to atomic levels. Then they bring in the Flash, and I'm like, all right, the Flash. Superman, that makes sense. Green Lantern, Plastic Man.
0: Not just Plastic Man, but also the Elongated Man, who is like, plastic man, but not as stretchy because he has to drink a potion he made from a root. But it's, like, two guys with the same powers. You get Martian Manhunter, Wonder Woman, the Creeper. Like, I barely know anything about the Creeper and I'm way more into DC than Marvel. Like, I I think that's why I was kind of intrigued by this because I'm like, okay, this isn't just a Batman story. We're really getting into this, like, what if future DC universe? And because I like this universe, I'm willing to go with it. Like another series from the nineties is Kingdom Come, which was this future DC universe by Mark Wade and art by Alex Ross. It's beautiful. I love it. It's actually comprehensible. Like this story. <laughs> I mean, we talked about the, the media outlets in Dark Knight Returns. And here, like you said, it goes from the naked news to manga to people dressing up as superheroes
1: doing like I don't I can't follow this I cannot follow this series I couldn't either I tried I followed the gist of it but it's really hard to just understand the full depth of it unless I think you are so versed in this DC universe that's at least what I'm writing it off as is I just don't know DC well enough to understand What the hell I'm even looking at in some scenes? I They never mentioned Elongated Man by his superhero name, and so I never knew who that was.
0: I mean, Arnie, if you had, talking about just looking at this thing, if you had problems with the art in Dark Knight Returns, like I said, Miller's always evolving, and and I guess we could talk about devolving art styles because this book is ugly. Like, I don't get what he was going for. Are these three-second sketches that he's doing in some... I can't even call them panels. uh, The uh, Dark Knight Returns was so tight with all these panels on a page. This... Characters are all over the place. They're all done in
1: different styles. It's a grotesque-looking book. I agree. I'm not a fan of the kind of cubist art that I see in some comics where they don't try to make people look human, but instead try to make them look completely angular, right angles... Superman has it worst in this book, in my opinion. But I have to say, I like the coloring and the style and the computer generated graphics like you were talking about. I just, though, hate the pencil work. <laughs> and that's, if that's Miller, yeah, this one is really hideous. And he tries to be so risque by like, we're gonna have a naked woman, but we're gonna cover the nipples and vagina with word panels. Ha ha. It's like, that, that's again, an Austin Powers joke. <laughs> You get, like, a
0: six-page sex scene between Superman and Wonder Woman, like, and these are full-page splashes of them just, like, flying, and I'm guessing, I mean, it's obscured by Superman's cape, but they're pretty much
1: just banging in the sky, and at one point they're underwater with sharks. It ends with her saying she just pregnant her again. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's what's going on, and people had problems with Batman and Catwoman recently, but this was fine, but... I, yeah, this is a very scattered mess. It does do some things I like. I liked that Superman and Wonder Woman had a daughter who, because all the superheroes had gone into hiding, Superman was an absentee dad. I actually, that was the only character in this I liked was Superman's new daughter who kinda does something and then disappears.
0: It's funny that you mentioned that, you know, you said with Dark Knight Returns, you got this Watchman vibe from it. Well, there is a well-known story treatment called, I believe it was Twilight of the Gods. And it was a future setting of the DC Universe that Alan Moore was planning on writing where there was these different factions, different kingdoms. There was the Superman kingdom and the Captain Marvel Shazam kingdom. They had kind of separated the Earth into these different kingdoms that they had taken over. And in that, it was all about like Superman and Wonder Woman's daughter that they had together. And that's a big part of this story. Again, this is the Dark Knight strikes again, and he's in it very little.
1: Yeah, I was disappointed at Batman's role. He does kind of become the leader of all the unified superheroes against who? The government, Brainiac, all of it. <sighs> there's an alien invasion, and in the
0: beginning, there's something about nuclear war, and then an asteroid's coming to Earth, and it becomes Armageddon, and... Then there's Luther, and I don't
1: know. And then Dick Grayson shows up. This really angered me, I'm going to say. I hated Dick Grayson as the Joker. And the reason I think I hated it so much is because Batman is willing to kill him, and there's no, we once had good times, we were once partners. It's just, you suck, I'm going to kill you.
0: Yeah, you're whiny and disobedient. And it's funny because if you read All-Star Batman and Robin the Boy Wonder, which is like the beginning of this Frank Miller Batman universe, when Robin's parents die at the carnival, Batman pretty much just abducts him and, like, calls him a retard and says, I'm the goddamn Batman. You better listen to me, you stupid retard. I mean, he belittles him. And I got to think that, like, Miller was trying to set this up because they are not in a good place in this book.
1: No, and Dick Grayson has, like, superpowers that he can be dismembered and just put himself back together (laughs) again.
0: Batman cuts his head off with an axe, and then he just sticks it back on. Like, this is not good, people. This is bad.
1: Yeah, so I recommend The Dark Knight Returns, but I suggest you stay the hell away from The Dark Knight Strikes Again. I fortunately have only read both once. I will never read The Dark Knight Strikes Again again. And so it will not sully my memory of the first one. It's so incomprehensible. It's barely stayed with me since I read it a couple days ago. But, wow, it is just shocking, the drop in quality. I would expect this if The Dark Knight Strikes Again was a cash grab by the publisher, and they just grabbed whatever writer they had and said, go to it. But for the original writer to come back and do this, this was the continuation of his vision? Look, if 9-11 did affect it while he was still working on this book, maybe that explains
0: what's going on. It's weird, though, because superheroes are calling themselves terrorists here, and they're the here like, it is a mess. And look, though, I, I'm a fan of the DC Universe, and if you're a fan of the DC Universe and you like things like Kingdom Come and kind of these weird what-ifs or these future stories... I'm not going to recommend this, but you know, if you've seen it in the store and it kind of piques your curiosity, flip through it and see what kind of vibe you get. I, I appreciated it the first time. I'm glad I've read it once. I would have never read it again if it wasn't for this podcast, but <laughs> as a DC fan, seeing all these kind of characters, uh, a mild enjoyment from it uh, for a one-time enjoyment and not something I want to dip again, but no, it's not something I'd recommend to, you know, I wouldn't give it a, a, straight recommend for just anyone in general audience
1: i'd say if you're still lucky enough to have a bookstore in your area especially one that has a coffee shop go in and read the first 50 pages while sipping a latte and you'll just not want to read anymore (laughs) so jacob thank you for joining me to look at this and we will be back to look at what came out one year later batman year one next week so thank you, listeners. Remember, you can check out our reviews of the Batman movies over at nowplayingpodcast.com. And also tying into Now Playing, Stuart will be back in between our Batman podcasts, looking at books tying in to our Steven Spielberg retrospective. You can find out all about that at nowplayingpodcast.com. So until next time, remember, support your local bookstore or comic book store.
0: Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at PodsafeAudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved.